The Baha'i faith believes that throughout history, God has sent to humanity a series of divine educators whose teachings have provided the basis for the advancement of civilization. They explain that the religions of the world come from the same source and are in essence successive chapters of one religion from God. They believe the crucial need facing humanity is to find a unifying vision for the future of society and of the nature and purpose of life. Established in 1863 in Persia and in parts of the Middle East, there are approximately 8 million devotees of the Baha'i faith around the world. Dr. Brian O'Toole received a prestigious award from the British government for his years of service in education. Given an award at a ceremony at Buckingham Palace from a member of the royal family, he and his wife Pamela left the UK over 40 years ago to be of service to the Baha'i community in Guyana, a nation of less than a million people in South America. Fueled with passion and a dedication to work in the service of others' education, he founded an institution known as Nations University. Although it started in the 1990s with just a handful of students, 36 years later, there are now several thousand from over 28 countries, and they serve from preschool to graduate studies. Having grown the school and raised his family, Brian was no doubt proud of the life he built in the service of others. However, on January 2017, 2019, at 9.44 p.m., he came home secured the gate behind him. As he was about to open the door, a male suspect approached him. He pointed a gun and fired three rounds in his direction, two of which caught Brian in both forearms. His wife, Pamela, heard the shots and had Brian immediately rushed to the hospital where his condition eventually stabilized. Brian provided law enforcement officials with the name of the individual he recognized as the shooter. To date, no progress has been made in making an arrest, and with a $1 million reward, the assailant is still at large. Welcome to A Climb to the Top, Stories of Transformation on Talk Radio 77. My guest this evening is Brian O'Toole, and Brian, welcome to A Climb to the Top. Thank you, Chuck, and thank you for the, the very gracious introduction. Well, I appreciate that. And as I thought about what is the best way to introduce it, I was hoping that it was honest, that it was topical toward what is in your head and what is in your heart. And I'm very saddened by those events. And I hope that in spite of all of that, I hope you are well. And, and the fact that you're on this show means a lot. Yeah, the, yes, certainly well and uh, rebuilding. The hand is still paralyzed after 15 months and after extraordinary help from doctors at Mount Sinai in New York. Right. Uh, but it could have been worse. And now the challenge is to see what the future brings. Indeed. Well, we're glad you're here. And I wanted to talk about the Baha'i community because I think in the United States, we don't think of it. You know, we don't see it. It's not that visible. We are a nation of lots of different religions, but can you explain whether it was from your childhood or wherever it came from, what led you to work in the service of the Baha'i community? And let's kick off there, and, and then we can talk about your journey from the UK to Guyana. 
Yeah, my, my mother is from Iran, and my grandfather, in fact, was a Baha'i in the early days in Iran. But my parents divorced when I was small, and so I never really quite understood what the Baha'i faith was from her. And like I suppose many people of my generation, was disillusioned by religion that I saw much more of the trappings of religion rather than the, the fruits and the benefits. And then I got a scholarship to go to Iceland to study their culture and their sagas. And almost by accident, I met with the Baha'is and started to discover independently what the Baha'i faith was. And then had the good fortune to have a year off between school and university and traveled in that year throughout India and several countries in Africa, meeting the Baha'is in jungles, in deserts, the Bushman in Botswana and coming to see that here was a religion that was very practical, that believed in the oneness of mankind and the oneness of religion, very much as your introduction stated, stating that different messengers have come from God at different times in history, and simply Baha'u'llah was the latest of these messengers, and his message is for the unity of mankind, and maybe in the next thousand years another messenger will come because maybe by then the challenge will be to unite Mars and Pluto and the Earth. But right now, the challenges are right down here on Earth. And the, to me, the beauty of the Baha'i Faith is that the Baha'i Faith has no clergy. So no priests, no pundits, no mullahs. If a Baha'i wants to, then they would leave their country, as we did in, what, 1978, and went to Guyana as a member of the community, not as a leader, not as a guide, but simply to be of service. And that's why we came and why we've stayed. Great. Tell us about the evolution of the school. When you arrived in Guyana, what did you set out to do and where did you take it? So it started with a handful of students. And now, as you mentioned, I think it's 4,300 students are there. Going from preschool all the way up to MBA programs. Well, congratulations on the enormous success. You must be proud of the platform and the educational institution you were able to provide. But what I also know about the school, you work in partnerships with other institutions, be it the UK or Australia. Is that part of what students can expect to, to launch them to other countries? Yeah, I think we've been very fortunate to develop partnerships with the University of Cambridge, University of London, University of Bedfordshire, that allows us to bring first-rate internationally recognized programs to Guyana at an absolute fraction of what it would cost them to do those courses if they were able to be accepted in England, if they could get the visa, if they could travel, etc., etc. So now there are several thousand people who have either completed those courses or are presently taking them. What were the challenges as you were growing a school, whether it was Guyana or you could have done this wherever it was, in building it, finding teachers, staying, staying focused on the mission? Good things, bad things, how'd it go? I mean, maybe a small illustration of the need could be that we also have an NGO that we run and we got a consultancy from the British government to look at the uh, effectiveness of the money that the British government had put into education, into Guyana. And for six months, we investigated the levels of literacy 
in 22 schools in two prominent regions of the country. But this was like 10, 10 or 11 years ago. And to our amazement, we found that 20% of the 12 year old children in school could not read a single word. So at that, at that time, uh, the Minister of Education was someone we knew very well. We met with him. He was shocked by the res those results. It was the front page of the newspaper the next day. But by the second day, I think some of his political colleagues had shared with him that they, in fact, had been in power for several years. So it came off the agenda. So I suppose part of it is the challenge to try to create a new model of education within a system where being a teacher is an extremely low priority, very poorly paid, and to try initially to take people from such a, such a system, employ them at nations, and to try to challenge them that we want a totally different model of education, not the traditional talk and chalk and reproduce what I give you today in an exam in June, but now 20 years or 22 years later, I think we have a cadre of people who have really bought into that vision and really are very much committed to it. So I suppose our challenge is to try to put some of these wonderful principles of the Baha'i Faith into practice. And instead of just talking about them, to try to see what, what does it mean to put a quote like, um, one of the quotes from Baha'u'llah is, regard, regard man as a mine, rich in gems of inestimable virtues. Education alone can reveal those qualities and enable mankind to benefit therefrom. And I think our challenge has been to try to find those gems, to polish them, and to make the children and their parents realize that the children can possibly be far more than they themselves felt they could be. And is the Baha'i faith prevalent in this educational institution? Just it, well, it, I mean, in the we, walls? Sure. I mean, we, we teach and we respect and we celebrate all the great religions of Guyana, right. Hinduism, Islam, Christianity. Right. We celebrate all the holy days. I think what we try to do is to inculcate that vision and those principles into the way that the teachers interact with the students so that they see that their task really is to bring out the gifts and the talents of the students and try to create a much more holistic education. I think like so many countries, there's a slavish pursuit of the right answer right. to achieve well in very competitive exams. Mm -hmm. And I think our challenge is to try to see that academic success could be a byproduct of a school where children are valued, supported, where they're trusted, where they're, they feel that they can be confident in giving their ideas and their views, and for parents to appreciate that they have a significant role in this process as well. Indeed. Um, I cannot imagine having accomplished all of this, particularly in the service of so many people in a country that sounded like this is desperately needed. I don't know what it's like to be shot, Brian. I don't know what it's like to stand at that moment of terror, and I think many of our listeners could, could not possibly imagine it. What did that do to you, given that this is a, a show about transformation? Did it change the way you see 
people in humanity before or after that event? Uh, well, maybe just to backtrack a little bit, if I could. I mean, sure. may, maybe it's no surprise that in a community of about 4,300, there should be some troubled individuals. Right. Um, in early January of last year, we expelled a boy because of known dealing with ecstasy in six different schools. We met with him, challenged him with the evidence. His father came in. He accepted it. He didn't deny it. He didn't challenge it. So he was expelled. And then within a very short period of time, a matter of days, another boy who attended Nations a decade ago, but has moved to Florida, he chose to go on social media and put in the most vivid, uh, terrible way about how he planned to blow up the school. He showed the gun that he was going to use. He showed the chemicals that he was going to throw on children. And hundreds and hundreds of people know his identity, this boy in Florida. Within four hours of that post, 400 people came to Nations for an impromptu meeting. We didn't call it. They came of their own accord. Because the shootings in where Columbine, in New Zealand, in Norway, in Texas, God knows where, all too fresh in everyone's mind to take it lightly. It was a very moving meeting. Uh, many people were scared. But it was also one of solidarity, that this is a challenge that we have to meet. I went home at about 10 o'clock that night, very tired, uh, entered the driveway from, from my house. It was all brightly lit up, just about to open the door when somebody jumped from behind me. And I looked around and saw a boy of maybe 16, 17. I could see him very clearly because the whole house was lit up. And then without saying anything, he fired three shots. Firstly, I thought that this was some boy trying to scare us and it was a blank. And then the first shot missed my head by about a few centimeters, but the second and third shots went through both arms. Uh, and then as I went to the ground, I couldn't believe that this boy started to do the most bizarre dance. And I thought, what, what is he, high on drugs? And then eventually, um, you, know, you mentioned about going to the hospital immediately. In fact, we phoned for an ambulance, which never came. We waited 45 minutes, and then we went, we went ourselves to the hospital. And on the second day, some of my students came, because by then it was all over the media, front page, on the newspaper, television, radio. Because these things don't happen in Guyana. The drug people shoot each other, but very, very few instances of shooting members of the public. And then two of my students came in and they showed me a video. And to my absolute horror, this video was of, the of exactly the same dance that this boy did. And it was from Fortnite. This very sad, very evil video game. And um, a group of our parents who constitute our Parent Teachers Association met with the cybersecurity branch of the army and were told by the army that they had tracked down five 
children from prominent families who were deeply, deeply involved in Fortnite. But after telling our members of PTA, we heard nothing more about that. I gave the police a description of who I thought the shooter was. The police claimed that he was out of the country at the time. They showed me um, a form that we all have to fill out when we leave the country. I looked at it with the police commissioner and I said, no, no child writes like this. And I said, yeah, we have copies of all our students handwriting, their signature. He looked at it, he says, yeah, I agree with you. No way a boy wrote this. He says, I will promise you that I will send you the proof that he indeed was out of the country. That was 15 months ago. They, they never shared. Never happened. You're, you're listening to A Climb to the Top, Stories of Transformation on Talk Radio 77 WABC. I'm Chuck Garcia. My guest this evening is Brian O'Toole. Brian, I, I can't help but think that an event like this would change your outlook. Um, or, or maybe it didn't. I, I don't know. Um, you know, what are your reflections now in spite of this being unresolved? Just uh, did it change the way you see things? I, I'm not sure. I mean, when I went to New York, thankfully, we have a good insurance five times to Mount Sinai. I got to know the doctors there well, the nurses. And they all said, well, why, why go back? Uh, from the story that you're telling us, mm -hmm. this person has never been apprehended. There's obviously powerful forces behind him right. to allow for the fact that no arrest has been made. But you know, Guyana is our home. At no time did my wife and I feel the desire to, to leave the country. And I, I, I suppose like many people who have gone through difficult situations, whether it's a car crash or some kind of health emergency, it, it makes one appreciate every day and try to make sure that whatever time we have available now is really used to the absolute maximum. Right. Did it change anything you did in the school? either security or personally, anything different? Yes, um, whilst I was in hospital in Guyana, my wife undertook a major revamping of the security and in a matter of days, uh, had a totally new system in place, had the kind of system that you have usually at airports uh, there to help the parents realized that we're doing everything possible that we could do and spent a considerable amount of money in establishing that. On a personal level, the door of our house still has the bullets in it. So we haven't lived there now for 15 months. We're living in a small room in the, in the school. And I'm amazed that my wife is content with that for someone who dedicates herself to making the house look beautiful and the garden. Now we're in a room of, I don't know, 10 feet by 15 feet, but, but happy in what we're doing to try to help contribute to a country that's coming out of being one of the poorest countries in the world, now being blessed or maybe cursed by some of the biggest oil deposits in the world and if at any time, God knows, this is a time for leadership and direction. And I suppose the hope is that out of the thousands of people who are emerging out of nations, some real gems will arise who see that leadership 
is their challenge and that unless they take hold of that mantle, then maybe Guyana won't profit and grow into what it surely could be. Right. When you look at the students that you have impacted over the years, and I'm sure there are many, are, are, are you proud and can you count of the success stories of those that started with you at a very young age and have stepped up and taken their place in the world? Yeah, that's a very good question. Guyana has one of the highest emigration rates in the world. Right. The, you mentioned earlier about the population. It's somewhere between 700 and 800,000. That was the same population Guyana had in 1978 when we arrived. Right. So for many days, under the darkness of what some people call dictatorship, other people said it was creative leadership, in those days, there was a passion to lead the country. And unfortunately, that passion is still there, despite the fact that the BBC has predicted that Guyana could become one of the richest countries in the world. But now we are here, just had elections, uh, was it five months ago? And still the election results aren't out. So that it's, it's a real challenge for a lot of Guyanese to see beyond the challenges that exist immediately and to see what could come about. We're excited now at Nations to now have the children of some of the students who started with us. And a few are returning now from primarily New York and Toronto to huge Guyanese population bases right. with the hope that they can indeed contribute to a new Guyana, and that's really our hope. That must be a great feeling to see the generation turn and to see now the children of the people you knew when they were young folks who have emerged into their own lives. Yeah, for sure. Um, many of our listeners have a tremendous idealism. They want to see the world. They want to change the world. They want to make the world a better place. And while that is a wonderful sentiment for anyone to carry, it comes with risks and with costs. In the time that we have remaining, speaking to those that may be thinking about what you did, what, what advice would you offer to someone who is early on in their career and thinking about they may want to go to a developing country and contribute to the educational model? What would that be? Yeah. If I could just very quickly share one opportunity that we had here, it, it was to introduce a program called Community-Based Rehabilitation to work with children with disabilities, like so many of the poorer countries in the world, possibly 98% of children with disabilities get no, no help whatsoever for their special need. So this was a program that was developed by the World Health Organization by which they looked at what speech therapists, occupational, um, physiotherapists, doctors, to try to greatly simplify what they do and then try and train people within the community to take on that role. So we, we worked on that in Guyana for maybe 11 or 12 years and found volunteers in almost every region of the country. I was then given the opportunity to go to a number of countries by the UN to look at their versions of the program. I would go to, for example, Ghana, 
and the volunteers there would ask me, well, what, what are you going to give me for playing this role? In another country in Uganda, uh, they said, well, I get um, a sewing machine from this NGO, I get a scooter from that one, what are you going to give? In the 11 or 12 years of working in Guyana, not one single time did anyone ask for any remuneration. And I, I suppose one of the, the challenges here is to try to develop a new model of development. I think too much of the concept of development is for the poorer countries of the South to try to come closer to what the North has done. But increasingly, both in the North and the South, people are seeing that that's not the model of development they want. But then I suppose the, the challenge is to really respect and honor the contributions that people are able to make and to realize that being articulate is not being fluent in what, what one can say, but really having something worthwhile to say. And I think in our time and working in these development projects, we, our lives have really been greatly enriched by the spirit, the dedication of the village people. And I suppose the task is to really come here with or come to countries like Guyana with an open mind and to realize that it's a whole new model of development, of education, of art and music that we need to develop together if we are to meet the challenges of this particularly pressing pandemic that we have all over the world, whether through uh, a virus that's come from invisible sources or the man-made viruses that we have all over the world. Indeed. Well, Brian, I, I wish we'd had more time. Unfortunately, in this radio show, we are confined, <laughs> but there is so much more that you can speak, and for that, we are grateful. So let me first state, Brian, um, thank you for your contribution to Guyana. Thank you for your contribution to the school that you created. But I think more than anything else, you are such a shining light and a wonderful example of exhibiting courage and grace under fire and having the, the perseverance to recognize that while the situation you're involved in is unresolved, it doesn't seem to have lessened your resolve for going to work every day in the service of others. Um, is, is that a fair conclusion? Well, it's, it's a very kind and gracious one. <laughs> well, let's see what the the future brings. But I'm I'm excited about it. That's great. Yeah, I and mean, we stay upbeat and we stay confident. But more than anything else, Brian, we are all at Talk Radio seventy seven WABC for my producing partners. For a climb to the top stories of transformation, we are very blessed you came into our lives and we are very thankful for you sharing our story. So for our listeners, thank you for tuning in this evening. You can always find me on demand for this show on my website, chuckgarcia.com. We are also available on the C-Suite Network and listening to us on wabcradio.com as one of the places but thank you so much for listening. And Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for your time. Very much appreciated.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>